You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Don't Worry Darling, which came out in 2022, was directed by Olivia Wilde. It stars Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, Chris Pine, Olivia Wilde, Gemma Chan, Kiki Lane, Kate Berlant, Timothy Simons, Douglas Smith, Asif Ali, and Nick Kroll. The genre would be psychological thriller. Welcome to the Victory Project. Here you can live the life you deserve. It's a different way, a better way. Why are we here? You get to become a part of this family. What do you think they're really doing out there? Alice, have you lost your mind? The Victory Project is doing something to us. I've been waiting for someone like you to challenge me. Like a good girl. Don't worry, darling. Only theaters. Rated R. As a burgeoning director, how do you follow up what is likely the funniest, most inventive comedy of recent years? Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. That's, he broke art rules. Name a person who broke a real rule. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. I'm referring to Booksmart, of course, which came out almost four years ago, and while receiving strong reviews, was not the commercial smash that it deserved to be. And many unfortunately dismissed it as a female super bad. For the record, I loved Superbad, and I loved Booksmart even more. It was arguably just as funny and as quotable as Superbad, but had more visual flair and a slightly tighter story. But that's okay. You can love both films. That's allowed. Wait, you, you changed your name to McLovin? <clears throat> McLovin? What kind of a stupid name is that, Fogel? What, are you trying to be an Irish R&B singer? And the answer to the question above is, well, if you're Olivia Wilde, your follow-up is a somewhat original twisty thriller with a genuine feminist streak. And you take your shot at some of the big boys out there who have been dominating the mind-bending genre landscape for the past several years. I'm talking about M. Night, Nolan, and most recently, Jordan Peele. And as unfair as it might seem to be comparing Wilde to more veteran directors at this early stage, it was hard to watch this and not think of films from those other three directors. There are certainly elements of Inception, Get Out, and The Village in this story and how it's presented to us. Because Wilde, with writer Katie Silberman, who also wrote Booksmart, they're just going for it with an all-out allegorical and somewhat satirical meditation on old-school patriarchal, quote, values, which often feels like a loose homage, though some critics are actually calling it more plagiaristic, to the Stepford Wives. I didn't bake anything yesterday. It took me so long to get the upstairs floor to shine, I didn't have any time to bake. Now, is it as good as some of those aforementioned films from Nolan and Jordan Peele that I just mentioned? Well, to start, Florence Pugh proves once again just how versatile and fearless an actress she is, and it's pretty much her movie. The film takes place in the 1950s, and she stars as Alice, a boisterous housewife living in a mysterious, picturesque, almost utopian village secluded in the desert with her adoring husband, Jack, played by Harry Styles. 
They live there among a select group of families and couples because Jack works for the top-secret Victory Project. Welcome to the Victory Project. Here you can live the life you deserve. They're a loving couple, they're possibly even newlyweds, and they also live a seemingly idyllic life amidst a place where everything looks clean and fresh, as do their attractive set of neighbors who they all know well and they all have regular parties with. Of course... Not all is as it seems. As Alice keeps having disturbing visions, she's noticing some very strange behavior from one of her neighbors. Strange things start seemingly happening to Alice, which seem incomprehensible. Her husband, Jack, won't actually tell her what he's doing for work at the sinister-looking Victory Project headquarters, which is on top of a mountain just a little ways off. And Frank, the apparent leader of the Victory Project, keeps looking at Alice in all of the wrong ways. Uh Uh-oh. Alice. No. Jack. It's okay. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. Frank is doing something to us. Delusions, memory problems, hysteria. We saw these issues with Margaret and know that it's uh, completely curable. Dr. Collins prescribed you a suite of medications which you were clearly not taking. The question is why? He's lying to us. He's lying to all of us. For the most part, the cast is quite good. Chris Pine plays Frank, who is presented pretty early on as the apparent villain of this story, giving constant declarations of how everyone at the Victory Project has an important part to play here. What are we doing? Changing the world. What are we doing? Changing Changing the the world. world. He has one genuinely creepy scene and a couple of entertaining monologues. But honestly, his character Frank does not factor into the movie as much as I would have thought. His smoothly sinister presence is actually almost upstaged by Gemma Chan, who effectively plays Shelley, his chilly wife. She is arguably more intimidating than even Frank is. Faring even better than both of them is Timothy Simons playing a bespectacled doctor for the company who seems all too eager to medicate. And Wilde herself, Olivia Wilde herself, actually gives a nice acid turn as Bunny, Alice's sarcastic neighbor who has some of the film's funniest lines as she keeps snarkily passing judgment on her own rambunctious children. Boys and their toys. At least we know they're getting work done. Of course, Florence Pugh is the overall standout as we effectively watch her character go through the ringer. This is kind of similar to her role in Midsummer, which she was fantastic in but much less passive, and that was really more at the fault of that film's screenplay. Florence Pugh's Alice is just going through the full range of emotions here in response to any number of wacky curveballs that this screenplay throws at her. She does all of this seamlessly. Violet, where did you meet Bill? We met on a train. To Boston. Boston. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You dropped your ticket? And he bent down, picked it up, gave it to you, right? It is, yeah. That's how Margaret met Ted. And Peg, am I right in thinking that that's how Debbie McIntyre met her husband? Yes, I am. That's how they met. And then there's Harry Styles playing her husband, who I'll get to a bit later. So no, with this film, Olivia Wilde does not reach the directorial heights of a Chris Nolan or Jordan Peele. The beats of this story just never seem to go as extreme as they could. And as a result, the danger never really seems as terrifying as it could be. At its core, this film's issues often seem to be at the screenplay level. However, that does not mean the film does not entertain. It's generally well-paced, and on a technical level, it's very impressive all around. The production design by Katie Barron also dazzles, as it takes what you would expect from this sort of 
Pleasantville-type period setting and gives it some genuine quirky flair, from the sharp edges of kitchen appliances to the soft textures of every monochromatic piece of furniture. Everything looks clean and inviting, almost too clean at times, for the desired effect of keeping the audience on edge. The same goes for the ear-popping sound design, ice clanging in glasses, record players scratching. Every technical aspect of the movie just helps immerse you into this world. And not to spoil anything, but I have to say that if you had described the actual climax of this movie to me without having seen it, I would laugh in disbelief. Because on paper, it just seems silly. However, watching it, it really works. It's just a fun, efficient way to resolve the story. A story that generally works and has an engaging protagonist at its core. But, if I'm being honest, it just never reaches the high levels of tension that Olivia Wilde seems to be going for. Overall, Don't Worry Darling is a solid entertainment, which looks and sounds great. Nothing more. And that's okay, as we still don't have enough star-driven, mid-level genre films just for grown-ups out there in theaters. This one does the job, and while it's no book smart, though few films are, Olivia Wilde is still a talented filmmaker to watch. And that brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. The soundscape of this movie is jam-packed with catchy pop songs from both the 50s and the 60s, including most notably the Oogum Boogum song from Brenton Wood, really catchy, which kicks off the movie in playful fashion. As of the recording of this review, there's no official listing of the other pop songs utilized, but they all generally work. However, what helps drive the film further, and even does some heavy lifting at points with regards to maintaining tension, is the exemplary score by composer John Powell. So I'll choose a couple of standouts from that score. It's pretty inventive music, even sometimes using breathing sounds to highlight the eerie mood. We hear this sonic motif really developed during a couple of sequences featuring Alice at a ballet class with her fellow housewives. All seems lovely and pleasant, with the class practicing their latest moves until Alice starts seeing a figure in the main dancing mirror whom she recognizes, but isn't her. And as she's drawn to this figure on the other side of that mirror... That's when the breathing sounds really kick in. (laughs) This track is fittingly called Advanced Ballet Class. John Powell's work here even sometimes reminds me of more avant-garde, non-melodic scores composed by the likes of Johnny Greenwood. There is some very effective, bracing stuff here using sticks and scraping violins to set a creepy tone at times. One notable example of this is the music that we hear repeated over a few different montages of Alice preparing breakfast for Jack in the morning, taking us through every step very quickly, including sharp edits above a coffee cup to a close-up of toast being buttered. Well, you get the idea. The track is called Breakfast of Champions.
And now the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Just for context, 90% of the audience in my packed screening to see this movie was apparently here to see Harry Styles on the big screen. And I do get it, ladies and gentlemen who love Harry Styles. Styles is a very good-looking dude, and Lord knows he looks even better in all the fashionable, period-specific outfits we find him in here. And he does effectively raise sparks in a couple of critical early scenes with Pew. They have solid chemistry. But honestly, what is he doing in this movie? Styles is not bad, per se, but he's not particularly good either. From an acting standpoint, he's just kind of there. Even with much less screen time than Pew, his is still a critical role, and she seemingly blows him off the screen every time they're together. And in the third act, when he has some bigger scenes, that does not always serve the story well. Not everyone gets this opportunity. And if you keep talking like this, you're going to put it all at risk. You're worried about a demotion? That's what you're worried about? Our life. Alice, our life together. This. We could lose this. His accent goes in and out at times, which isn't a huge deal. It's just that in a few critical moments, when Jack is supposed to take over the screen, he actually recedes a bit. Now, granted, Harry Styles has only acted in a couple of movies. He was actually pretty good in Dunkirk just a few years back. But here he just feels miscast. Yeah, sorry to say it, but Shia LaBeouf would have killed it in this role. He just would have brought more oomph and layers to the character of Jack. And now the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Don't Worry Darling is loaded with visual flair, and that helps with one of its core strengths. It shows rather than tells most of the essential information for the audience. That's a good thing. We see montages of Alice cleaning, drunken parties, fractured memories, all that stuff. And it all just looks gorgeous, even as scarier images start to creep in. One standout sequence about halfway through the movie occurs as we watch Alice wiping down windows along a side hallway at her house. When suddenly it seems as if the wall behind her starts pushing her into the glass, gradually starting to crush her. The camera closes in on her face being squished into the glass. And it's not only this image that's effective, but the sound design. We hear the uncomfortable muffled squeak of her skin moving along the glass. It's a genuinely scary moment, which has also been all over the trailers for this movie, as it turns out. I just wish the movie had more moments like this. And that brings me to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Speaking of that visual flair, much of this comes from stellar work from one of our most underrated cinematographers, Matthew Libatique. This guy has been one of those stalwart directors of photography, or DPs, who always delivers stirring images. For the past two decades, he has been the go-to guy for both Darren Aronofsky and Spike Lee, doing exemplary work for films like Inside Man, Black Swan, and most famously, his really effective work for Requiem for a Dream. That film was just loaded with crazy imagery portraying drug addiction, including moments of seemingly benign objects made to look more sinister than they are, often via quick close-ups. And he brings that style with him here to strong effect. For instance, his camera work serves the film's climax very well, as the third act conflict might initially feel conventional, but it's pretty exciting to watch regardless. 
I'm trying to be careful not to spoil this, but let's just say that there is very little which occurs in this climax that we have not already seen in dozens of thrillers before, in some form or variation. Let's just say we see some fast-moving imagery, and I'll leave it at that. The way everything is framed, along with some good performances, of course, gives all this a freshness amidst imagery that in lesser hands could come off as just a standard action sequence. There is no doubt that Olivia Wilde deserves some props for helming a very entertaining movie. But sorry, there are just some choices that she makes as a director with regards to casting, structure, tone, which prevent this movie from fully achieving what it sets out to do. At the end of the day, this film just simply does not work nearly as well as it does without exemplary work from its cinematographer and a fully fleshed out performance from its lead star. As a result, Florence Pugh and Matthew Libatique are the co-MVPs. Darling, I'm with you all the time. Can't you see I long to be? My rating for Don't Worry Darling would be three and a half stars out of five. Oh, right. And apparently there's been a ton of ridiculous gossip related to this film's production, one of its stars, and its director even. My advice would just be to ignore all that idiocy. Just enjoy the movie. And if you're looking to watch Don't Worry Darling, it is now playing in theaters. And that ends another regressive review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. And follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.